I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Now, the album is called Mammoth WVH. The band is called Mammoth WVH. The human being who we have with us is called Wolfgang Van Halen. And been lucky enough to talk to Wolf a few times as the songs from his debut album, which is out now, kind of came out one by one. But now we have the whole thing, and it's everything I've heard works even better in the context of the album. Uh, I think it's it's one of the strongest, just full, straight-ahead, unabashed rock albums I've heard in a while. And I think you should be very proud. You feeling proud? How you feeling about it, Wolf? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's crazy that we're here. <laughs> it's been a, a long time coming. So it's just, it feels like a dream that it's fine. The thing I've been working on for this long is, is finally here. It's interesting because I think hearing the whole thing, it does emphasize to me that it's dead on to say two of the touchstones here are Foo Fighters and Jimmy Eat World. You and I have been talking about it for a while. And I mean, obviously, there's a ton of influences and there's stuff that only you can do, a lot of that. But when you think of what lineage this is in, that's what it is. Tell me about like discovering those bands. It's not like you had to dig deep in the crates to find them. They're pretty popular bands. But, you know, discovering those bands personally and really specifically what you kind of took from them as far as inspiration. Yeah, when it, when it comes to, you know, I always had this dream of doing an album with me playing everything just like Dave Grohl did for the first Foo Fighters album. It was just a thing I always wanted to try. It was always on my list of like, this would be really fun. And when I got back from the 2012 uh, Van Halen tour, I was kind of just like, okay, well, what do I do now? And uh, I started writing, like taking it seriously. And that's when I wrote the song Mammoth. And it was like, okay, I think, uh, I think I'm onto something here. And that's kind of where it all started. And uh, just from, from the bands I would listen to all the time, everything from Foo Fighters to Jimmy Eat World to Nine Inch Nails to Tool to Alice in Chains, Queens of the Stone Age, you know, it just kind of, those influences really seemed to inspire me. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, but with the main thing, just Dave Grohl doing that first Foo Fighters album and just, you know, I always had an affinity to to bands like like Blink-182 and 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 Jimmy Eat World I really love harmonies and I think that's where my love for like harmonies and melody came from with bands like Jimmy Eat World because they're just so strong with that type of stuff so I, that really laid that foundation for me in terms of that Mammoth which is a aptly titled song is one of my favorite tracks on the album tell me about especially since it was the beginning tell me about that one coming together Yeah, it seemed to kind of, it gave me the confidence to kind of be like, hey, okay, I think I'm on the right track here. I kind of hit the the tone and the pace of what I was going for, for something. It, you know, it felt new. It felt different. It felt something that was like original in my own. It didn't sound like Van Halen. It didn't sound like anything. It just sounded like this might be what my music sounds like. So it was that kind of mysterious, exciting thing that was starting to grow that was like, okay, this might be it. How much songwriting had you done before that? Not too much. It was kind of, you know, uh, on and off maybe for the past year prior to, to 2013, but it was 2013 that I really started taking it seriously. So none of that stuff, like that year period, none of that stuff made the album? 
No, no, it was really Mammoth that was kind of the beginning. That's why uh, the demo title was Mammoth 1. It felt like the, the start of this thing. Now I'm really curious about these lost songs from your first year. Were they really weird? What, what was the deal with them? Yeah, they just I was just trying to figure myself out. I think they were heavy and, and just weird. They don't really fit the uh, how, how Mammoth was or how Mammoth is, you know. <laughs> that is interesting because it's like, and I think you do hear that from artists, whether they're talking about their whole career or a single album, that sometimes you do write a song and you're like, that's the starting point. Like, this is the cornerstone I can build around this. And it sounds like that's very much what happened. I mean, there was even one song I wrote called Up. That was one of the 28 songs or one of the, uh, yeah, one of the 30 songs or 20, I don't remember any songs, God, I lost count, that we recorded that we kind of dropped because it was, it's, it's very different. It'd be fun to maybe throw it on as like a bonus track at some point, but it's, it's really different. It's like straight up metal, like crazy double kick stuff. And it's just like... That's pushing it a little bit for the, the umbrella of the sound of the band. But I think there's 14 tracks on the album, including Distance, which is kind of a bonus track. I'm so happy. So all those other songs that you recorded as part of this project, do you imagine you'll be putting those out as part of the second album? Or do you think they're, they're outtakes forever? There's a handful that I, I really want to return to. You know, while we were doing it, there were maybe four songs that we just, we really didn't finish. But there were maybe close to, gosh, close to 10 songs that were like, these are good, but they're not going to fit on this album and we don't really have the time to explore it fully. So I guess I'm kind of book, I kind of bookmarked those for later, as well as ideas I've written since then. So, so the, the second album is there. We just got to record it. <laughs> That's awesome. It's funny because Dave Grohl, when he recorded that first Foo Fighters album, he actually had a history of privately going in the studio and recording, you know, all the instruments himself. Uh, so it was, it wasn't like, it was just the public debut of that. But with you, what we're really, you, you kind of started doing it and that's what we're hearing. So that's interesting. What did you learn about yourself as sort of a, a musician through this process of being the one man band? I learned more about enjoying and, and crafting a song. I, f I found that I'm more of a songwriter than anything else throughout the process. Uh, I think that's where I found my identity and, and what I was comfortable with through the process. It's where I kind of put my stake in the ground. It's like, I'm not going to try and be my dad. I'm not going to try and be this virtuoso revolutionary game changer. I'm just going to be myself and write songs and write music that I want to hear. And if people want to hear it, cool. If not, than, than whatever you know I, I liken it to like <laughs> when you're when you're just one part of a band you kind of maybe have even subconsciously this affinity to show off a bit more so you can be like hey that that one part is me listen to that but when you're doing everything you have way more like you would sound like an asshole if you just if you did that for every <laughs> instrument you know what i mean so you, you kind of you, you kind of lay back and you're like i don't know it's like i tend to do more things for the song rather than to show off. We know that that actually answers a question I was thinking about. We may have touched on before is that, you know, you're, you're 30 years old, like you've been playing a really long time, but still there's that really powerful urge to show off a little bit, especially if you can play a lot of shit like yourself. And yet you, for the most part, resisted it. There's, there's moments, but you really resisted. Even your producer was pushing you to do more of it. And you were like, nah, 
But that really does answer it, doesn't it? That you, the whole thing is showing off. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing that people step over. It's like, well, why isn't he showing off? It's like, bro, he's playing everything on the goddamn album. I think that's showing off enough, isn't it? <laughs> people seem to be stepping over that a lot more than I thought they would. It's like, oh, you know, it's pretty simple. It's like, yeah, but he's doing everything. Like, that's pretty much showing off, isn't it? We talked a little bit about Mr. Ed, which is the opening track. And you do step out a little bit on that one. Yeah, I thought it was a fun, energetic one to kind of throw at the beginning. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't not do any guitar solos, but you know, I, I, I'm happy with the solos I do do on there. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cashback. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. It is interesting. You started with drums, right? That was your first instrument. And how did you, you know, we've heard the story now, at least I've heard the story of, of you know, your, your dad putting out a bunch of magazines and, and like, this is how you play drums. How did you get from that? Like, hey, I got rhythm on these magazines to where you are, to, to where you are now as a drummer. Like, what were some of the steps to like really achieving the kind of mastery? Yeah, at a certain point, it's just kind of that 10,000 hour rule. It's the thing I've done the longest. And I started out from there. I would just listen to Van Halen Best of Volume 1 and Enema of the State by Blink-182 and try to emulate that. Like I'd play all the small things in that first that first fill that Travis does in the, in the first verse, you know, and just trying to nail that stuff perfectly. You know, I never learned how to read. I never learned how to read music. I know how to read words and stuff, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) well, you know, uh, as best I can. Uh, but, uh, I, uh, yeah, I would just try to do that. And I, I noticed a big step up in my skills as, as a musician, as a drummer, when I started listening to tool, Cause I really started to try and mimic everything that Danny Carey was doing. And it's like, I don't know how to count any of that stuff, but I know how to play it. Cause it's just like a muscle memory type thing. And so that's where I really noticed my improvement as a musician is when I started playing tool on the drums. <laughs> and from there, it just kind of, once I could do that, I felt like I could nail everything. Uh, I, I tried to. Did you ever have formal lessons on, on any instrument from an outside teacher or anyone? 
Nothing, nothing. I wish I took piano lessons as a kid. I wish my parents forced me to do that, but uh, they they did not. Well, I, from what I know, I, you know, obviously your father studied piano pretty intensely, and I think his mom was really, really intense about him studying piano. And I wonder if if that's one of the things where I'm not going to inflict that on, on, on my kid. Yeah, no. Well, he, yeah, he still didn't even learn how to read it. Like during piano recitals, he had, he would memorize it, and they would never they never knew. <laughs> That's wild. Do you think you have perfect pitch? Nah, nah, I don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, I can, the only thing I do, like when I'm tuning a guitar is that I can kind of hum either back in black or highway to hell in my head. And I'm like, okay, that a, that's, that's a, that's a, you know, a half step down a on, on highway to hell. And for, you know, that's, that should be an E, I think. And back in black is like a e, big E chord, right? Yeah, at the beginning. Yeah. I noticed we sing the same note, so maybe we. we <laughs> well, someone will have to check us. Um, but, I mean, I ask because, you know, it is interesting when you consider people talk about your dad, but like your whole lineage or a big part of it, like, you know, your grandfather, your uncle, there's obviously, and this isn't to discount your hard work, but there, there obviously must be some, you know, if they could study what's going on in the genes there, there's obviously a musical facility. Yeah, some sort of that, affinity to it, I guess. Just a, a yeah. sort of, uh, more, we're more comfortable in that space, I guess. Yeah, it, it, does, it does seem to be the case. And I guess with drums, I think you picked it up pretty fast, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it was it was something I really took to. There's a, I've been looking around. I'm trying to find. My dad had this little personal tape recorder, and there was one thing that he recorded that he would always show me, all the time. Which was he was just in the kitchen, and I guess I sat down on the drums myself and just started playing something. And uh, he, <laughs> you can hear him like way downstairs. He's like, "Holy shit, that sounds." fucking awesome and then he starts to you hear him walk up the stairs and the drums get louder and louder and it sounds like this really cool beat this really heavy thing and then he walks in and he's like wolf play that again and you hear like in the background like what daddy like this little <laughs> like fourth grade kid hit doing this really sick kind of beat and he, he would just show that to me all the time he, he was so proud <laughs> that's wild i mean i don't know if i ever told you this but when i you know like i interviewed your dad before before like Dave rejoined the band, like just before. And he was like, you know, my, he's like, he's like, my son is the greatest musician in the world. He's a little kid who, you know, he's like, he's the greatest bass player you've ever seen, but also the greatest drummer and all the shit. And I, and I was like, you know, for years I was like, I got to hear this guy play drums. I've seen him play, but like, so I'm, I'm glad, you know, he, he, he wasn't joking though. Never shut up about me. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you start playing the other instruments, the stringed instruments? How did you go from drums to, to those? Uh, on guitar, I, I wanted to learn 316, the song that he wrote for me, to play at a talent show in right. like, sixth grade. And so he taught me that fully. Uh, but then he taught me how to do power chords. And I took it from there as well. I, I kind of, uh, I would do guitar tabs and stuff. You know, I learned how to play uh, chop suey by system of a down from guitar tabs and and stuff like that and, I, and you just start to kind of amass riffs and you start to figure out like oh this is how like i remember it blew my mind when i figure out what drop d was <laughs> like i was like how is it low i don't get it and it's like oh it's just that one string you know just you know the little things people go through when they figure stuff out and i like that dad let me figure that out on my own you know it, it allowed me to kind of forge my own musical identity then 
than follow in his steps and become like a little clone. Like I'm so happy that I'm not him. We had a Rolling Stone. Uh, we once had a, an intern of a, a very famous rock star, different, not you, uh, who uh, who was, and you know, and he told me he was learning guitar off the internet. And at the time, I was like, off the internet, like get one of your dad's friends or get your dad, you know. But I understand now. It's it's you don't want to go to that source because it's never going to be your own, right? It's something like that. Yeah, you kind of figure out how you are, and that's all all your little quirks and your bad habits and your good habits kind of just make you your own person. And I'm happy that I'm my own player and not this carbon copy of my dad. I think that'd be really boring. And you had never played bass basically before the, uh, well, I guess not before Dave joined, but before you started jamming with with your dad and, and, and with your uncle. I hate to say that, but yeah, that kind of, I, I didn't really, it was just kind of, there was one day we were hanging out in the studio and I started playing Running with the Devil. And it's, you know, that song's really easy. It's just like two notes. Dun, dun, exactly. Dun. Yeah, that's yeah, it, yeah. You know? And that's not a, you know, an insult or anything. It's, it's, per- it's perfect for the song. It's what makes the exactly. song. Um, but uh, yeah, I started playing that and it was just really fun in the moment in the studio. We started playing it, playing, you know, a, a Roth era song that we hadn't heard in a long time. You know, that, la- you know, they had just come off of the, the 04 tour. So the, the kind of thing that was in the recent era were like the Hagar tunes. So to revisit the real Roth tunes were really interesting. And we just kind of had this hairbrand idea. It was like, hey, what if I go home and learn some songs and we, uh, and we just all make a playlist and we just start having fun. Uh, and yeah, that's initially what it was. It was like there was months of us just like, this is fun. Let's do this. And uh, after a while, we just kind of found that there was something special there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the initial thing, I, I went home one night and I learned a bunch of songs and I made a playlist called Van Halen Trio Jams. And I think that piece of paper is still hanging up on the studio, uh, in the workshop. And, uh, there were even some, some Hagar era songs on there. And I remember once we had Dave in there, he looked at the list and he's like, what's get up. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, I, sh- I should remake the list. <laughs> Did you ever play, were you ever like second guitar before that? Like coming in? Because I mean, people don't realize like, those, you know, your, your dad and your, your uncle, I think their whole life, they always had this ability to just jam the two of them for amounts of time that might seem like unfathomable to outsiders. No, I was always just playing the bass, filling that, that space, you know? So yeah, and it, we, we just played so much, just like, you know, you'd say they'd play all the time. And it's like, we play so much that it would get boring. Like it, it would get into our bones into our muscles that you don't even think about it you're just on autopilot and you start to really have fun with it and as we can hear on this album you play bass like a bass player you don't play bass like a guitar player you know and the difference is every musician knows what what the difference is and and many listeners know what the difference is and so, you know there's there's the very cool kind of like john entwistle lead bass that can be fantastic and you know and jack bruce and other people who are very aggro bass players but for the most part you play in a more restrained style how how did both you know for your album and as as a member of van halen how how did your bass playing style kind of develop yeah i mean uh i was certainly in van halen that sort of lead bass you know dad would call me lead bass (laughs) you know and uh it was certainly that that sort of vibe and where it was kind of i was almost filling the space of a rhythm guitarist and a bass player because i I, you know i I, hell i i was playing through a 5150 a guitar amp for like dirt and uh so i was kind of filling those two 
spaces. But when it came to the album, it's like I, I wanted to kind of just be a bass player and, and really kind of lay back, groove with the drum. It's all about the groove and locking in with the drums more than trying to show off. Granted, there are some moments, like if you're listening to Feel and you're not focused on the guitar part, it, the bass is like ridiculous under there. You know, if you really focus on it, it's like, whoa. <laughs> it's a long, long way What I was trying to say though is, is like you say, it, it almost is like two different bass players: the guy who was playing in Van Halen and the guy who who's playing on on this album. Yeah, if I if uh, I if I used my my Van Halen bass tone for this album, it, it would probably sound pretty weird because uh, <laughs> there's a wall of guitars already, so that that space doesn't need to be filled. You know what I mean? Do you have favorite bass players? Les Claypool, Justin Chancellor from from Tool as well is is a huge one for me. I was going to say you, you like Les Claypool and you like Danny Carey from Tool. Uh, so I think you're a Rush fan, but don't know it. It's it, so true. Yeah, I really, it's like, uh, I dig Rush like on the surface, but I never really have dove in to their stuff. And that's the fun. It's like, I know I'm, I'm, it's like I'm a Rush fan and I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, because you, you picked like the two musicians who sound the most like members of Rush for people to understand, but yet you don't talk about Rush. So that, that might be ahead for you. You, you still can be... Uh, yeah. What were some moments that were hard for you recording the album? The vocals were, were the biggest question mark for me. Figuring out who I was as a lyricist. I guess it was the, the lyrics more than the vocals. I knew I could, I had the ability to sing. It was just a, trying to figure out what my lead voice would sound like. But the, the bigger question mark was the lyrics. That was the hardest thing for me. And how did you get there? A lot of work, a lot of procrastination. There are plenty of times where... Uh, Elvis uh, Basquet, my producer, was ready to work. He had a really busy schedule, so we were constantly working in between his schedule. Um, and there were, like, the, the entirety of 2016 kind of went down the drain because I wasn't ready. I was kind of really slowly working on it. You know, I, I had maybe about four or five songs lyrically done out of the 28 ideas we had, and we recorded them uh, in here. You know, we recorded Distance, we recorded Resolve, and a couple scratch tracks for a couple ideas that aren't even on the album. And yeah, oh, I think we did the big picture in here too. Um, and uh, at a certain point, I ran out of lyrics. <laughs> so it was like, hey, I, c I can work now. And it's like, uh, let's do it. <laughs> and we did it once. And it was like, you don't have anything. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, let me work on it. And we had to kind of just hanging out that trip more than, you know, more than anything. I, it was like, okay, we should work, but you, you don't have stuff. Uh, so let's like mess around with some melodies or something. And, uh, so it took me a lot, a lot of time to really, really figure that out. So did you have vocal melodies with dummy lyrics before you stuck in the lyrics then? Yeah, I usually do melody before, you know, uh, before vocals, because I think vocals before melody can sometimes be really wordy where you're trying to fit words into it rather than letting it flow naturally with a, with a comfortable melody. Bono from U2 sings in what they call bongolese, like this made-up language, to do the melodies before he has lyrics. Is that what you do? Yeah. Do, Wolfies? Yeah, I guess a little bit. Like, it's just kind of me humming stuff into my phone and stuff like that. And, and maybe the, you know, the vibe of the song, maybe, maybe a word comes out of that. And that, that word leads me to somewhere else. And, and then you end up coming up with a line, and that line sort of 
starts to take shape and you figure out what the song is about. It's almost like the song <laughs> in the least douchiest way possible. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to say that song is telling you what song to say, kind of right? tells you. It kind of leads you into uh, what it's going to be about. Spending a long time on songs procrastinating reminds me of the band that you're opening for. You have an amazing opening gig coming up for Guns N' Roses. Crazy. Yeah. Tell me how it your first reaction to realizing you you got that slot oh man i i still can't believe it it's 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 insane yeah slash texted me when when it was like ready to go and he was like see you out there man looking forward to it and, it, and even then it still didn't seem real so it's uh yeah i'm still I'm, I'm freaking out about it it's gonna be really fun but but damn what a what a first uh what a first tour <laughs> how well did you know those guys uh, before this I've known Slash for, for years, you know, just from seeing the shows and, you know, Elvis did his last few albums and, and uh, you know, Frank, uh, his guitar players in my band. Oh, right. From uh, Miles Kennedy and the, yeah, yeah. And I know uh, my pop was friends with him and, and, and Duff. So I've just, you know, we've been adjacent over the years. What's your uh, favorite Guns N' Roses stuff musically? I mean, I, I really dig all of it. It's just... Uh, I think everything from, yeah, I was talking about it with with my uncle Pat. Is that there's some really great stuff on the Use Your Illusion. He brought up the song The Garden, you know, like some deep cuts, like stuff. Like deep stuff cuts, like yeah. That. And, but I mean, uh, I think you can't go wrong with the hits either. I mean, like as as overplayed as as Sweet Child of Mine and and Welcome to the Jungle are, it's like they wouldn't be so overplayed if they weren't so fucking great. <laughs> you know, they're amazing. It's going to be interesting facing an audience that. And fun, hopefully, facing an audience that's not necessarily there for you. But luckily, they're not there for like... It's not like you're opening for Van Halen either. You're kind of just doing the standard thing of you have to win over this audience who likes rock. You know, it's going to be a, an amenable audience, but you're going to have to do that thing of fighting to I'm get so over. excited to get out there and just prove myself and, and just to, to let my own music stand up on its own two feet and, 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 prove, and prove it to everyone and just go for it. So, you know, just telling a little bit more of your story in Van Halen. So, you know, you're, you guys are, you guys are jamming for months in that studio. Was there ever a time when it just seemed like this is just for fun or did it seem like, cause again, like I talked, <laughs> I, I talked to actually both your dad and your uncle separately uh, again during that time because the hall of fame induction was happening and they were like, we don't know what we're doing. You know, it's like, we, all we know is whoever the singer is, they'll be surrounded by Van Halen's. And I was like, but it has to be rough. It's going to be rough. And they're like, we don't know. And it's like, were they kind of, was it inevitable or was it like, how did that work? Initially, it was, it was all for fun and we were just having a good time. But as it started to show that there was substance there, if you will, it's when I think it was just inevitably going to be rough. You know, it was my idea. You know, I like, it's certainly what I wanted. I think they had been exploring the Hagar years, obviously much more recently so there we were kind of i think everybody was was clamoring to to hear that whole half of the catalog and uh that's when i we all decided i would be the one to call and call his manager and i left a, i wrote out exactly what i was going to say as this little 14 year old kid and called uh his manager and was like basically hey can you know this is Wolfgang Van Halen can can David Lee Roth come out to play please and that December he he showed up one night and we plugged in and we played on fire and it felt amazing <laughs> it was 
I think that was like late 2006 in December maybe. And he gave us gifts. He gave us <laughs> these like furry hats. <laughs> I still have it somewhere. I, lo- I love it. It's really funny memory. But yeah, and it was just, it felt like, oh shit, here we are. Like this is, this is awesome. <laughs> so it was really exciting. I guess, and you know, maybe something that's just hard to talk about, but just the, the, uh, the day-to-day experience of working with David Lee Roth, who's like an unusual dude. Like he's, he's not, I mean, I think by his own admission, like he's, he's not your everyday person. He's, you know, he's a freaking character. And there you are a kid grappling with so much, grappling with this lunatic (laughs) on vocals for the first time in years with your dad, where your dad is with your uncle, who's a total mystery to me, but he's amazing. And just, I mean, what day to day to day to day, what, can you give some flavor for what was that really like? Yeah, I mean, he, he really is a character, and and it. Uh, but he was very supportive. You know, he he really welcomed me onto the team. It was never like this, you know, what the hell's this kid doing here kind of thing. Like he was fully in, and that was a real, real pleasure. You know, he really welcomed me in. I mean, obviously, he he wouldn't have been a part of it had he not been okay with it. And it just we really gelled. It was really fun. He's he's a funny guy, man. <laughs> Always laughing. Did you learn anything about facing a crowd from him since you're now beginning your frontman career? I don't know. I think uh, I'm certainly not trying to emulate him in any way when it comes to being a, a, a frontman. But being able to see how, how he can control a crowd is, is really a, a fun thing to see, you know, regardless on if I'm taking any pointers from it or not. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's one of the greatest frontmen in the, in the history of the, of the scene. So, I mean, I do wonder whether it makes you, I'm sure you appreciate him before, but just, you know, thinking that, you know, you're going to go out there and you have, you have your guitar and by the way, are you going to play anything else on stage? Like will you be switching instruments? I'm probably just going to stick to guitar and singing. That's enough of a heavy lifting type thing for me <laughs> since I, it's what I'm least confident in. So I'm excited to really dive headfirst into that. But it's like you have your guitar and these are your songs and this is your band and it's like, but it's interesting to think of being Dave or being Sammy and standing in front of all these great musicians and especially your dad, the greatest guitar player in the world. And you've got nothing, just yourself, your throat. And no wonder he's out there doing karate kicks and stuff, because how do you, right? It's like, I mean, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's definitely that, that bit of, uh, you know, at the, at the risk of starting some sort of controversy or whatever but yeah, i think there is that that small seed of jealousy that's there when the crowd starts chanting eddie you know but i mean how are they not you know it's fucking eddie van halen how can you not cheer for that so but uh i think that's where that animosity maybe comes from a little bit and it's like you know dad never asked for that he just wants to play guitar <laughs> you know I, I remember uh story my mom told me when he got nominated for like some sort of award he started crying out of like fuck like what's dave gonna say he's gonna get mad at me because he's gonna get pissed that i'm that i'm in the spotlight and not him you know he he never wanted that he just wanted to play (laughs) what's weird because you're a relatively quiet introverted smart dude who prefers to like be kind of home recording and stuff and hanging out rather than maybe like going out to parties and stuff and and people people are probably like oh he's the exact opposite of his dad who's the golden god of guitar wants to like conquer the world but actually right you're that's actually similar to your dad isn't it i'm exactly like him (laughs) in every way the anxiety the 
the self-doubt, <laughs> you know, the nerves, the shyness, uh, the self-deprecation. That's, that's all a perfect combination of my mom and dad. <laughs> Have you like avoided, cause I know you don't, you don't drink or do drugs. Did it, is it a thing where you've like avoided ever trying that stuff because you feel that you have like a addictive genes or how does that kind of work for you? I mean, I, I've, I've tried stuff before. I mean, I've smoked pot before I've, I've drank before nothing crazier than that, but it's, uh, I don't know. I've never found the need to, to do it. Like I've done it and it's like, eh, you know, whatever. It's fine. I guess as a social thing. I mean, I haven't partaken in anything like that for at least five or six years. But, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a thing I, I need to, to do. <laughs> At the same time, it, it does help to understand that your, your dad was like self-medicating for the same things that you feel, right? That's kind of the, yeah, that's exactly why he did what he did was because of his anxiety and his self-doubt and, and all that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing that caused me to have some trepidation with is that I was always really scared of taking pills even Advil, it's just like, okay, what, what does it say exactly? I'm going to take exactly that because uh, it took me a very long time. You know, I, I, I'd been in therapy for years and they were like, you should probably be on, on something. <laughs> You're not in a good place. And it's like, I'd rather just stay in this, in this place because I'm too scared to take anything. But it took last year to really push me over that edge <laughs> to start uh, taking Lexapro just to kind of help me get through the day. So, yeah. And has it helped? Big time. <laughs> That's great. I notice when I miss a couple days, just that kind of uh, depression feeling on your shoulders where you're just, you don't know what's wrong, but everything feels wrong. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to take it the last two days. That's probably why. <laughs> Speaking of Rush, like I spoke to Neil Peart's family and friends and they, you know, there's an, another loss in the rock world and then another kind of thing where they, you know, they had this loss and then there's the pandemic and it's just this, there's not words, they said, to really describe all those things coming together. And for you, it's that, those two things. And then you've got this this big coming out to the world and this positive thing of your album. So it's just this, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put words, but emotionally, how is that combination doing for you, especially at this point? It's just such a big pretzel of, of emotions, you know. It's, it really is this giant knot of confusion where some days are, there's high highs and low lows, you know. But work definitely does, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a welcome distraction, for sure. Being able to talk about something I'm, I'm proud of. And, uh, but hell, you know, m most people just want to talk about my dad with me. So, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's a fun thing to, uh, to be my own person and on my own right now. Uh, I just wish my dad was, was here to share it with me. Tell me about a riff like the big picture, which is just sick. In an age when we don't hear a lot of great guitar riffs, there are a ton on this record. Tell me about the places where your sense of, of like great riffs come from, which may include your dad, but I'm sure it's a lot of places. With Big Picture, that song is very much like an Alice in Chains sort of inspired, yeah. grungy era sort of thing. I think you can really hear that in the harmonies, like in, in, in the bridge. That big layer really screams Alice in Chains to me. Yeah, that's just a really fun really fun riff it's a lower tuned guitar so it's a bit heavier and i just love the the, the bendies in the bridge you know it's very a very slinky bendy sort of riff 
I may be overestimating your abilities here. Can you like reproduce an entire Alice in Chains song on like if I put you in the studio, do you have like whole songs in your head and you could you you could reproduce every part of them? It depends on the song, maybe. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. That's really interesting. So there's songs by certain bands that you've kind of learned on all instruments. Yeah, definitely. Name a few by different bands that, that you could that we could put you in. And you could fucking rock them out right now. I mean, something easy would be like like the middle by Jimmy Eat World. I can play that whole thing for sure, or something like Everlong or or Check My Brain by Alice in Chains or something like that. So much by Blink One Eighty Two. <laughs> I totally know all that stuff. <laughs> but it is really cool that you've absorbed songs. Because not many people can do that, where it's like you've pulled in the entire song into yourself. I think that explains a lot about what you're able to do on this album, is if you can internalize every, like, people can't see what I'm gesturing, but it's like you, like, swallowed the whole song, then you can put out your own stuff in such a finished way. That's really Yeah, that's, that's one of the fun things about drums, that I don't necessarily need to sit on a kit to learn a song. Like if I can play it on my knees, like with my feet and stuff like that, I can play it. <laughs> yeah, that's the really fun thing about, about drums is that if you can kind of, it's all about the motor skills to, to pull it off rather than learning the notes. You know what I mean? Tell me about finding yourself as a singer. We talked about lyrics, but you know, obviously you, you, you did backup vocals in uh, arenas all over, the, all over the place. So, you, you know, it's not like you weren't used to singing in public, but finding that voice as I am the lead singer. How did that work for you? It took a lot of Elvis's pushing and confidence in me that I didn't really even know or see in myself. It's like he, he knew it before I did. I knew I wanted to try and knew that I, or at least thought that I could do it, but it really took him to be like, you got this, man. Let's just, let's run through a couple takes of, of, of a couple different songs. And I think it was, it was either Distance or Resolve was, were, was one of the first songs that we did. And by the time we were done with it, it was like, Oh shit, I think I can do this. I think I figured out, you know, where my voice sits and and know when to to kind of push and know when to lay back and it, you know, cuz I was already halfway there, like I knew how to sing. It was just a matter of of being that main voice. That was a fun thing to discover. Did you have any doubt that you could do it? Yeah, definitely. I I I, st- <laughs> I still have those doubts, but it's like I, I I did it, so I guess I need to just figure out how to shut that voice in my head up. I like how you say that 5150 is where you're going to be recording music for the rest of your life, in part because it, it really just suggests that you're thinking of a long career, that you just want, so you want to keep this going. And, and do you think it's going to be under this, always under this particular mammoth WVBH name? Do you see that as like your lifelong vehicle or is this going to be one of many vehicles? For the foreseeable future, I, that's what I would like to happen. I, I, I could see mammoth being being that vehicle that I use for, for my whole career. Uh, and regardless of if that, if that comes to pass or not, I know that I'll be making music in that building until I die. There's something kind of beautiful about that, to keeping that place alive. Yeah, it's really important to me. It's, it's, it's home. It does get to that thing of, I want to move forward, but there's always that legacy and I embrace that legacy, but I don't want to be trapped in the legacy. There's all this like complicated stuff, but like, it's interesting when you consider in light of that, that you choose to record in that studio. It's really a tightrope for sure. Uh, and I'm sure it invites so much criticism, but I think it's, it's way more nuanced than the big details. Sure. I want to be my own person, but I'm going to record there 
it's part of my family legacy and you know i'll touch on that legacy but i'm not using it to forward my my career i'm, I'm fully standing on my own material and writing my own music yeah i think uh it'd be way more valid to call me out for riding my, my father's coattails. If I was touting myself as the next Van Halen and being like, Hey, you can only hear Panama live with me. You know, that's when it'd be like, who the hell is this asshole? <laughs> but you realize that criticism is, is nuts though. And they like, these are just crazy people on the internet. Right. I mean, you do realize that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, it's what I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> this is what I'm going to be doing. And it's what I want to do. If I can make a career out of it, then, then that, that's, that's a, just a bonus. Have you ever heard the advice that people give to creative people, which is don't read the comments. I personally cannot adhere to it. And it, I don't think you can either. It's one thing to, <laughs> to like, <laughs> I feel like Twitter, like social media is a little bit different because when I hit my feed, like it's right there. Like it, it's to me. It's not so much a comment as it is a message, you know, <laughs> it's but like, I'm not about to go to like, you know, uh, blabbermouth or something. or read the comments that that's some of the most un that's the unhappiest place on the internet are comments embedded into websites, you know, stuff like that. I remember, uh, the Washington post story that came out a little, you know, a couple, what a week ago or something. Do not go in those comments, man, <laughs> like on the website, because it's almost like if you feel like people were paid to say some of the most horrible shit they could possibly think of in there. But yeah, you know, I'm just so fascinated in the psychology of it, of what makes people want to do stuff like that, because I think it says a lot more about them than it does about what they're saying or who they're saying it to. It really, you know, it's just it makes me sad. It's like, why do you do this? You know, like, I, I hope everything's all right <laughs> because you, you, like, you're clear. Like, I hope this is just, there, there was one thing, uh, <laughs> I got this direct message on Instagram where somebody was calling me like a stupid entitled prick or something, uh, as a comment to something that it wasn't even like me being a sarcastic and a comment. It was like, I think I posted the, the don't back down live video that just came out a couple of days ago. And, and, uh, his, that was his response. And I looked through his profile and he was like this really great bird photographer. And I, I love, I love birds. I took ornithology in high school and stuff like that. So I was just scrolling. I was like, damn, these are really good pictures. And I was like, oh wait, this guy called me a stupid entitled prick. So I ended up writing him this, I was like, you know what? I'm going to hit him back. And, uh, I was like, Hey man, I hope this is just how you act on here. And you're not as, you know, miserable as you seem in your daily life. You know, your content is really cool. I, I, I took ornithology in high school, man. These are great pictures. Like, you're clearly talented. Um, so uh, know that I don't hate you. I know you started this thing with some malice, but uh, I don't hate you, man. And uh, he unfollowed me. He never he never said anything back. And I was like, I, you know, I gave you the opportunity, man. Like, we're just people. <laughs> what I found through my, my studies, if you will, <laughs> is that they're either going to double down or be like, oh man, I'm a huge fan, man. Just trying to get your attention or something like that. And it's like, hell of a way to do that, man. You know, it's it's really funny that kind of thing. Like, oh man, I was just pretending to be an asshole. You're still an asshole. <laughs> 
It is a, like a fascinating generational difference that your father and your uncle would go like years without saying anything to the public at all. Like people wouldn't know what the fuck was happening. And there you are right there. It's just a different, it, it, and I think maybe that's Well, that's a point of criticism too. Uh, they're yeah. like, you know, I miss the days when Van Halen, Van Halen would never talk. It's like, they never had social media. If they did, man, the shit my dad would say, he'd, he'd, he'd have been canceled already, you know? It's, it's, it's just a different generation. And I think a lot of those people don't really get it, you know? Uh, like, there was a really funny comment today where some guy said, uh, hey, Wolfie, it's Matthew birthday today. And I was like, sick. Ha- happy Matthew birthday to you, <laughs> whatever that means. And then he goes, what do you mean sick? I'm like, what do you mean, Matthew birthday? <laughs> like, uh, so I just, it's just more fun. Like, I guess I do what I do when it comes to like the trolls and just people that it's like the psychology of it just fa- fascinates me that it's, it's fun to, to, to poke it at all sides and see how it reacts. Well, we are looking forward to seeing you get on stage with, uh, well, not necessarily with Guns N' Roses, but before Guns N' Roses, same stage, maybe with, we'll see. But, uh, Wolfgang Van Halen, always great to talk with you. Congratulations on the new record. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, man. It's a pleasure, always. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Wolfgang Van Halen for joining me. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume. And in the meantime, we are, of course, a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. Truly appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.